welcome back to another episode of the Best Minutes Podcast, where each week, Movies by Minutes hosts examine the 1946 William Wyler-directed film, The Best Years of Our Lives, one minute of screen time per episode. I'm your host, Alan Sanders. And I am co-host Walt Murray. And we are having a great time breaking down this movie. We are the first team of a team of about 17 individuals that will be breaking down this film uh, we get the first 10 minutes of it, as you heard from the opening episode, and today is minute number three of the movie. Well, and this is an interesting minute for a lot of reasons, and I know that you uh, you will enjoy it because it is a great picture into military life. Certainly the way I kind of see it, and to be, to be honest, how some of it still looks that way to this day. Uh, but before we can get there, let's remind everybody, we are still in the airport, a very early American Airlines watching a businessman's luggage getting loaded for weighing, which I think is funny. I didn't realize at one point in time they did have an issue with how much <laughs> how much weight you could bring on in baggage and that there would be a fee if you exceeded the the, the weight limit. Yeah, and they also, um, I don't know if they were weighing people as much back then, but they would have to distribute the luggage differently and... Uh, I've got a friend who handles baggage. I got to ask him about this, but I assume that you still have to load it a certain way so that the luggage doesn't uh, cause any weight. Yeah, distribution weight distribution problems. is always an issue. Uh, bigger jets don't have nearly the kind of problem that smaller prop planes. Even this one that we're going to see in a minute um, is a uh, four prop, two on each wing. But the very first minute, as the red cap has put the golf clubs on the scale, um, we do get. The uh, ticketing lady telling our hero, uh, one of our heroes, Fred Derry. You might try the ATC, Captain. Now, I will. We'll, we'll, we'll catch everybody up toward the end of the minute because I did some research on that. I just assumed ATC was another airline, didn't you? That's what I thought at first. Yeah. So he's like, ATC, where are they? And she's like, out the terminal to your right across the field. Now, there's a lot of noise going on. I just, for some reason, I thought she said. Other terminal. I didn't realize, go across the tarmac where the planes are loading, and you'll see it way over on the other side where we don't want to mess with those kinds of people. I mean, it was... Right, and walk past the plane full of civilians that's being loaded, and uh, and walk under the yeah. plane. I mean, it's, <laughs> for, okay, first of all, I mean, how far have we come when it comes to worrying about safety and uh, access to airplanes? I mean, in my head, before we even get to the visuals, I'm thinking, oh, okay, it's just another counter or maybe one of the other terminals. Like, I'm thinking, you know, you and I live in, in Georgia, so we've got one of the biggest, busiest airports in the world here with Hartsfield-Jackson Atlanta International Airport. And so I'm thinking, like, oh, well, you just have to go to another terminal. I didn't know it meant go outside and walk to a completely different building somewhere not attached to this facility. Well, I actually had to do that before. Um, I flew into LAX from the Philippines, which was a nightmare. I mean, that's like a 22-hour flight. I was exhausted, and we arrive, and they said, oh, the, the train between the International Terminal and Terminal D or whatever is broken, so you've got to walk. So <laughs> I've got all my luggage from being in the Philippines for a couple of months that I've got to lug with me into the next terminal. And it was miserable. I'm assuming you're indoors the whole time. I don't think I've ever... Oh, no. Uh-uh. No, we had to go outside because the international terminal is disconnected from the rest of oh, the Oh, that's right. 
Yep. So that's why you take the train. And so we had to, you know, get everything oh. loaded up on our shoulders and, and head out. So, uh, yeah, it was miserable. That's crazy. I, I, now in my head, of course, we're explaining what's coming up in the minute, but I'm listening to the dialogue. I'm telling everybody here right now and you as well. Well, that was my thought. What I was, everything so far in this movie has completely blown what I was expecting to happen. I'm expecting him to go to another ticket counter. I'm thinking, oh, she's being nice and saying, all right, American Airlines can't help you, but go to ATC, which I'm like, okay, what's ATC Airlines? Yep. I'll explain that, like I said, in a minute. But it never even occurred to me what was, go- you know, what was going to happen to this character. I just assumed, oh, okay, he's going to go to a-, a competing airline to get a ticket to go back home. And in the meantime, we're back to the businessman who's getting his golf clubs and his his luggage weighed. And, you know, as uh, as our hero, Fred Derry says thanks and starts to leave, you hear... You have 16 pounds excess baggage, Mr. Gibbons. Oh, that's all right. How much is it? Like, eh. Once again, yeah. the, the, two, the collision of two different worlds. Here's a guy who can't even get a plane ticket. The other guy's like, ah, cost is no option. Who cares? And who am I to help a fellow vet? Well, and... 16 pounds of luggage. I mean, think about that. Well, 16 extra pounds of luggage. Right. Over the weight limit. Yeah. Over the weight limit. I mean, that is a lot of luggage. And that's not just his golf clubs or something like that. That is a lot of stuff. Well, and we don't know. And I, and I didn't look it up. I don't know what the sort of clip level was. Does it clip at 15 pounds? Does it clip at 20 pounds, 30 pounds, 50 pounds? But certainly the weight of a bowling ball is in excess of whatever it's supposed to be right now. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. That's And it's the biggest bowling ball. Mm-hmm. So this guy definitely is a jerk. Well, and I don't know if it's an intentional, but it comes across that way. Maybe it's because you and I have a different respect for military and those who serve. And when I see someone in uniform, and I mean, it's like, Yes, sir. No, sir. Yes, ma'am. No, ma'am. I just feel like I, I owe them a sense of respect. And I feel like it's not that this guy's being intentionally disrespectful. It's like he's being dismissive. Like he doesn't even recognize he's there. That's right. And I, I think everything with that, that character, which they credit him as George H. Gibbons. And he is uh, played by a, an actor named Ralph Sanford, who, if you uh, see his picture, uh, you'll know him from a whole bunch of cowboy movies, but he was in um, uh, Coca Cabana. He was in The Glass Menagerie, if you remember that from 1950, and a couple of war movies, Sea Tiger and Minesweeper. Hmm. Uh, but his he has 268 credits. Oh my goodness. He was on Wagon Train, Mr. Ed, The Red Skeleton Hour. Um, he like this guy was on everything and in every movie in his lifetime. <laughs> he was on the Gene Autry show. He was on Abbott and Costello. Um, I, I mean, this guy was on everything. So that's crazy. Yeah. So I'm surprised we didn't recognize him, uh, even though all these were definitely before our time. But uh, a prolific, prolific actor. And uh, I mean, 268 credits. That's that is insane. But he was born in 1899, Springfield, Mass, and died in 1963, Los Angeles, California. So, um, 
so uh, well played, uh, Mr. Sanford. But you definitely see that um, that uh, George H. Gibbons is a kind of a pompous, arrogant guy who doesn't really give much concern to anybody else. I think they really painted him that way. They did a good job with it. Uh, we get a dissolve, and now we. this is where all of my revelations hit me, you know, in this minute. You see an airplane outdoors. Now, I got that they don't have the little walking ramps yet where you can stay in the air condition until you board your plane. I remember seeing older movies and remembering hearing about you would have to walk out onto the tarmac and then walk up the, the ladder to get into the plane. But the shot of him walking and there's a plane just sitting there and he's going to walk underneath it and keep going while other passengers are loading for this particular flight. Uh, for those airline or airplane enthusiasts in our audience, what you're looking at here is a Western Airlines DC-4. Okay, which was a pretty common um, uh, airline uh, at that at that time, or playing for airlines at that time. Yeah, and it's just crazy to see what looks like almost a, a bomber yeah. configuration, the way the engines look. But uh, yeah, it's a four-prop uh, plane. Uh, this is a... a, a uh, not a jet, obviously. This is a you know, we're not in the era of jets, era of jets yet. So you've got your four props on here. Uh, Fred walks under the plane, crosses over the field, and then we get a dissolve to where he's headed. And it looks like a shack in the middle of nowhere with a sign that says Army Air Forces Air Transport Command Shack. And it hit me. It's like a air transport. Uh, the ATC. This is the ATC that the ticketing lady was talking about. Well, I just laughed when they showed this this scene of him walking in there. It, it you know, y- you hear generals say in all kinds of movies, nothing but the best for our boys. <laughs> and then he said to go from the air conditioned terminal to the shack at the end of the runway <laughs> that's full of smoke and sweaty guys and it's hot and he's now going to have to sit and wait. And then they cancel the first flight they announce. Well, uh, before we, and I want to break down that scene, I did a little looking into this just so I was like, okay, we know the town was fictional. Did they just make up this air transport command? No, this was an actual thing during World War II where the military and the private or civilian airlines worked together. And the reason it was called the air transport command is initially it was a way of trying to make sure that they were moving planes from location to location. And as it evolved, they started realizing, well, we got to move personnel and we've got to move equipment. And so rather than burden the airline, they would use the same sort of airstrips and airports to move military personnel and planes all through World War II. And so this actually, you know, started in in 1937. Uh, the plans for this mobilization of the air transport, it was actually called initially the Air Transport Association, and then when World War II hit, they turned it to the command. Um, and it stayed in place until uh, 48, I think, is when it got changed to a different name, and then it evolved from there. But, you know, it it was part of a, a long line of a sort of backdoor channel military airline, if you will, where people would try to get flights on existing, you know, if they knew they were going to bring cargo from Atlanta to NORAD out, you know, in in the West, or if they were going to fly to Okinawa or whatever. And members of the military could say, well, is there any room? Do you have any extra room to ride 
in that transport. And I was just blown away that this was an entire industry that evolved kind of as a result of leading into and then through World War II. Well, think about what we had to do to mobilize and that they were really even thinking about that. What did you say, 1937? Was when it was first conceived and really kind of went into full effect in World War II. Wow, that's pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, uh, just to give you a, f- a little more detail behind the scenes, not not too much because I don't know how much history uh, we want to get into here, just, but it is such an important moment here in the next couple of minutes that we'll be talking about in this movie. You might recognize some of the names as it evolved. Uh, basically, it was went inactive, as I said, in 1948. Air Transport Command was then the precursor of what became the Air the Military Air Transport Service, which was then turned into the Military Airlift Command. And you've probably heard that term, the Military Airlift Command. Oh, yeah. Which is basically the same thing we're seeing here. It's just a way of moving either troops, personnel, equipment, or the planes themselves from one location to the other. Um, It was consolidated in 1982, providing a continuous history of long-range airlift all the way through 1992, when the mission was transferred to now what it's called the Air Mobility Command. Ah, okay. So you still have the the traces back to World War II still exist today. It's like I said, it's almost like a secondary airline for military personnel. And I guess that makes sense because there's no way to move the number of troops that we move around the world well, on the, just military. Well, they use the civilian airlines for a lot of it. But in this case, this is where servicemen or women, especially if you've got orders, you could, rather than being on a civilian plane, you could actually hop on a transport that's going someplace already and uh, at no cost because that was already part of its flight plan. Makes sense. So it was almost like, hey, we've got some extra seats. If there's anybody going to this particular base or, hey, we're going to be stopping on to you know three other bases on the way to drop off cargo. But, you know, hey, you know, if you don't mind the stops, we're going to be uh, we're going to just, you know, hop, in, hop, skip and jump you there. Sort of like, I guess, how people who work for the airline industry today, the, uh, I guess, what is it, the buddy passes or friends and family where yeah, mm-hmm. you could say, hey, if there's any open seats, I'll be happy. But knowing full well that if it's sold out, you're just going to sit there waiting for the next available flight. Right. And I guess at this time, you could have ended up sitting on a um, on a ammunition rack or a, right. a jump seat or whatever. They weren't worried too much about your safety. And no, comfort. you would be in a jump seat. Just, yeah, it'd be exactly something like what we're yeah. going to see here uh, later uh, in, the, in, in the 10 minutes you and I have. But uh, yeah, yeah. It, it, these were definitely cargo looking transport planes for the most part. Um, the military would eventually start having, you know, transport personnel, transport planes that would be designed for uh, nothing but transport of, of individuals where they could load temporarily seats not just along the wall but in the middle they could actually kind of retrofit the the cargo planes for whatever the mission of that plane was at that given time yeah that makes sense so wanted to just drop that little bit about this is an actual true historical element that we're seeing here play out on screen that there really was sort of this alternative way of getting from point a to point b that was for military personnel only and your comfort was not our concern no it was more of a Hey, if you can't get a a civilian airline, or if you don't have any money because you you spent all night drinking and gambling and blowing it all away, you could take a flight. Now, what we're going to find out here is technically at this point in time, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, you had to have orders to put you on the plane, but you can also see that there was sort of that, hey, we're all brothers in rank. We all served. We're all veterans. 
sometimes you let those kind of hard and fast rules become kind of soft and, and blurry. Yeah. Well, and everybody was coming back from the war and I'm sure they were getting thousands of guys through there. Yeah. A lot of guys just trying to get home. It's all they want. They just wanted to be home. Most of them had already been discharged, but as typical military protocol, they were flying home in their class A's, their, their, um, not necessarily their dress uniforms, although the Navy guys, you know, there's not a lot of difference in, in, in Navy enlisted. Your, uh, your dress blues are your travel uniform. Um, military, you tend to have higher level dress uniforms for like ceremonial things, but then you have what's called your class A's, which are sort of your stepped up uniform, certainly not your combat fatigues, um, or what you would fight in, but a little bit higher up than, uh, than that, but not quite your full dress uniform. Sure. And we actually get a good picture of this when he walks inside, we get a sense of all these different forces all lounging around. You see guys in, uh, army gear, you see guys wearing, uh, Various forms of of uh, hat, uh, which by the way, indoors technically a no no. Uh, military, uh, you know, the, you don't wear your hat inside. You 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 cover your cover is your hat. You cover outdoors, right. but you uncover indoors. You would not necessarily see this, but uh, it is Hollywood. At some at some level, somebody just said, "Well, put some hats on some people, so that way we have some uh, variety in the scene." But in a true military situation, you would not have guys just sitting there unless they were sort of wink, wink, nudge, nudge, using it to kind of shade the light and go to sleep. Sure. Well, and, and one of the interesting things I, I, about this scene is when he walks in, he's an officer, of course, and it looks like a lot of the guys in there are enlisted men. Yep. And and somebody says, either at ease or as you were, I can't remember which one it is, but nobody had even responded to the fact that a captain just walked right. in. Right, right. And uh, it, it kind of shows you the demeanor that this is, you know, I'm out, war's over, I'm headed home, this whole military protocol kind of went out the window, and, um, you know, glad you're a captain, congratulations. <laughs> like, they don't even care. <laughs> so. Well, and I think, uh, as I said, I think a lot of this is these guys have already gotten their, their, um, they're discharged. They're, discharged. You know, they're already out. They've they've yeah. served. They've done their bit. They're going home. They they are not going to continue in military service. So they're wearing the uniforms as their travel gear because they've left their military, their last military post or last military you know uh, service where where they were serving. Um, so they're going home. But I think a lot of these guys have already checked out mentally. They're no longer into the military acumen and that and that military bearing. Yeah. Yeah, and and I can totally get that. I was on a flight one time from Boston to Atlanta, and this was, oh gosh, uh, 2010, and there were uh, some folks coming back from the Middle East, and they were all in their uh, utilities and fatigues, and um, and I, as I was walking by them, they were all just exhausted. You could tell from the flight and everything. But I'm thinking, these are folks coming home. I cannot imagine what they have just seen and been through uh, over the last right, year. Well, and yeah. depending how many tours they serve. So, I say yeah. tours, how some long of them they serve. Some were older, some of them were young. And uh, yeah, right. And so, I mean, some of them may have been there six months or a year, may have been on their second or third tour, tour by that time. And uh, yeah, and I'm just thinking the last thing these guys would want to worry about is saluting anybody or you know, any kind of military protocol, they're just ready to go home. Now we get uh, the guy running the, uh, I guess, 
the the, the scheduling and the planes, what's coming, what's going, because we get the the dialogue right off the bat. Uh, says the the sergeant. At ease, men. Flight 93, flight 93 for Denver, San Francisco, and Seattle. And there's a bit of a pause as they all, oh, all these guys all excited. That flight has been canceled <laughs> until further notice. notice. Yeah. And, and all the guys like, oh, and they all just sink back down. <laughs> oh, and that happens. I mean, you're, 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 you're no longer on a regimented, this is so funny. It's the military side of this whole air transport command, but it's on whatever their schedule it's not about the individual ticket like you would in the civilian airline where obviously we saw the man has a ticket he knows when he's getting on board he knows his flight he's going to get on board he's going to fly he's set here we go these are people on the military side that are just like it's ad hoc if it's available it is but guess what things change that plane could have been diverted somewhere else because the mission changed well, and think about how different it might have been three or four years before this when they were headed to the Pacific or um, to the, uh, you know. Oh, yeah. No, all those planes left. To, on yeah. Time. To the, <laughs> the European theater. Those planes were going and the civilians were the ones waiting. So it uh, is kind of a whole different uh, standard at this point for the for the entire country and the industry. Now, this is kind of a nice little uh, way to end the minute. Uh, because it's going to really act as a nice bridge into tomorrow. But you get a corporal who actually approaches the sergeant, and the sergeant says to him, says, yeah. And the corporal says, you got anything for Detroit? So here we are. We actually have an actual named city at this point. Right. The guy goes, nope. Uh, how about Cleveland? He was like, Cleveland? Okay. And I kind of like that because it just meant, hey, if you know your geography, Cleveland's not exactly right next to Detroit. But for wherever they must be flying from, it's a heck of a lot closer to home to maybe get a couple of cities over, or in this case, you know, one state over and maybe an, uh, a five, six hour drive sure. than it is to be you're know, waiting for the next plane for however many hours or days. At that point, you could have gotten a bus or hitchhiked. And I do think it's funny. We got to remember that Boone is actually modeled off of Cincinnati. We don't say that name, but we are, we've got Detroit and Cleveland both mentioned here in this moment. And you just realize a lot of these guys... The closest available, I just want to get home. Yeah. Yeah, I can understand that. So, And I, I'm kind of surprised that he didn't jump at that because, you know, Cincinnati isn't, I mean, it isn't close, you know, but at least you could, you are. Closer in, than Detroit. It's, yeah, closer than Detroit and uh, closer than wherever he is. So, uh but he's also an officer, and his expectation was that he was going to get on a nice commercial flight. And, um, you know, I guess he's always got that option of waiting till the 19th if he wants to. <laughs> yeah, if he wants to go back over there. Um, I do notice that the actor, um, uh, in this case, it's uh, uh, Dana Andrews. Um, he's It must be hot and stifling in here, not much in the way of comfort and air conditioning. Because while the corporal is having this conversation about what's available... Uh, he's just getting a, a handkerchief out and just kind of wiping his face and his neck off. Yeah, and he he just walked through the you know walked across the whole tarmac too. True, true. Outside, and I love that this building is just a shed. You know, it's not. There's nothing nice about this building. There's no air conditioning. The paint's falling off. Um, it, you know, welcome home. <laughs> so, thanks for your service. I, I just got to tell you, from my background being you know ex Navy, it's just killing me. The number of folks who are still wearing their hats inside. You've got yeah. the you know the naval guys wearing their Dixie cups. You've got the 
enlisted wearing their caps. You've got some officers in there wearing their their officer or flight caps. Because you can see there's different styles yep. of that short brim cap, uh, depending on where you look in the room. It, it, it's just so unlike what you would expect, at least as of today. And the military bearing of taking your hat off, I don't know when that became maybe as regimented and if this was typical of the day. But for me, it looks completely out of what was be expected of you in terms of your uh, your proper military etiquette. Yeah, I um, I don't know when that would have become. A th- I just assume that it has been for a long, long time. But yeah, most military guys I know take them off when they walk inside. Yeah, well, it's you know, it's it gets drummed into you in basic training in your whole military life. Uh, you're never outdoors without a hat unless you're doing some kind of really strenuous effort where it makes l- you know it's it's pretty obvious to see it would be in your way or a hindrance. And you never have it on inside, period. Yeah, makes sense. So, uh, but you know, hey, it's this movie that uh, is is set post-World War II, and maybe there was some of this where folks just, they're letting all of that military acumen, all of that military bearing and etiquette just kind of go to the wayside. Well, and again, I mean, it is the end, and like you said, everybody's kind of been uh, drummed out, and it's just, uh, you know... A lot of that has gone by the wayside, I guess. Well, let me ask you this before we we kind of wrap up this minute because we're we're right here. We're 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 watching one soldier say, "I'll take whatever gets me close." Uh, we're waiting for our main character to have a chance to get a word in edgewise to the sergeant here behind the desk. Have you ever been in a situation where you're kind of like this corporal? I don't care, whatever. I just want to get home. Uh, yes, I have. Uh, <laughs> I'd been in Europe for. Uh, seven and a half weeks and the uh, airplane we're supposed to fly home on uh, had some kind of mechanical problem. So they delayed us a day. So I was supposed to fly into New York. They flew us into Chicago and my flight had been the day before my flight, my connecting flight from New York to Atlanta. So I had to go to the ticket counter and say, Hey, here's what happened. Here's my, ticket. Uh, Here's my ticket from yesterday for my flight to Atlanta. What can you do for me? And she was like, okay, this is a new one. (laughs) So after about 20 minutes of phone calls and banging away on the computer, they finally got me and the person I was with a flight from Chicago to Atlanta and got the last two seats on the plane. So mm. I don't know what we would have done if they couldn't get us those seats. I probably would have let the other person go on and spent the night in Chicago. But yeah, it was kind of a, you know, when I, when we were leaving Europe and I was talking to the lady at the ticket counter, I said, what do I say when I get there? And she said, just show them all your tickets, tell them it got messed up and see if they can't work with you. So wow, um, that was a, that was kind of crazy. I was thinking, am I going to have to rent a car and drive back? <laughs> How's this going to work? You know, go ride a train. But yeah, the good folks at Delta Airlines helped me out with that. Excellent. I don't think I've ever been in a position where I felt like I would do whatever it took, you know, rent a U-Haul with a bunch of polka guys just to get home because I left my kid at home alone at Christmas or something. But (laughs) I, I, I did my fair bit of traveling when I was with IBM, and I remembered learning very quickly how to work the system, especially with a cell phone. Right. Because a couple of times when you're traveling all across the Midwest in in the United States, you know, a lot of people don't think about this unless you fly all the time. 
thunderstorms can so easily throw a wrench into the regular, you know, schedule of airplanes because you got to fly around them. You got to wait to take off. Um, I remember we were sitting on a tarmac for about four hours because they wouldn't clear us to take off. Ugh. It was the weirdest thing. We were already away from the gate. At one point, the pilot said, OK, well, we're going to pull off to a different spot and uh, kind of wait this out. And we did. And then we got back in line. And I was like, what are we doing? And I just was getting so ill because we were just sitting there, but we had to keep our seatbelts on and stay seated the whole time because I guess at any moment they could say, oh, all right, we're going to go ahead and start taxiing uh, and, and getting in line. So it was the worst because I already don't like just sitting still. And yeah. you know, if you take a longer flight, it's going to be four, five, six hours if you're going from one side of the country to another. Uh, and a couple of times I had to fly uh, to France, England, and the Netherlands. So I was going cross Atlantic. Those are long flights already to me. Yeah. You're sitting there for four hours, nothing moving. And oh, by the way, the AC doesn't really work so well when the plane's just kind of sitting there in, in standby mode. So it was getting stifling. And I just remember saying it wasn't that I was unable to get home. We just couldn't get off the ground. And I was, I mean, I was in the freaking plane. We just couldn't go anywhere. And that was just, that was maddening. Well, I had a I I had a client in the Miami area uh, for quite a while, and so I would have to fly down. They were near kind of Fort Lauderdale, I guess. And every single time I flew out of Fort Lauderdale, there was a thunderstorm at the other end of the runway, and we had to sit <laughs> every single yep. time. Florida thunderstorm capital of the world. Absolutely, and as you know, in Florida it gets hot, and they have not corrected that air conditioning issue. And I always said, you know, if I had a, a meeting on the other end of this, I would probably have to fly down the day before just to make sure I could have a shower before I went to my meeting because yeah. you would just sit there and sweat. I mean, it was terrible. Oh, the humidity and the heat. And, and again, I get it. I, I, I'm, I'm smart enough and I'm sort of compassionate for the circumstances. Like, I don't get mad irrationally at the crew and, mm. the, and, and the pilot. They can't take off. It's not safe. They don't want us taking off in the middle of a thunderstorm. Hey, I get it. All things considered, I'd rather sit there than take off into a thunderstorm. <laughs> True. I don't want to die. I mean, one, yeah. one's kind of permanent. I don't want to be on one of those Discovery Channel shows about the airplane crash. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. Little did they know that just moments away, they were going to have their lives ruined forever. No, I don't need that. That's no, not that's, my way of ending the day on a good note. I'm good. The only other thing that happened to me plane-wise, and, and I blame Charles de Gaulle Airport in France because they were in the middle of this massive remodel. And by the way, you want to talk about a jacked-up airport? It, I have never been in a worse airport in terms of layout and design than Charles de Gaulle Airport at the time I flew there. Probably this is about 15, maybe 16 years ago now. We had a late flight leaving. We get to Charles de Gaulle, and, and they have these really weird futuristic-looking uh, giant buses that are kind of like on, um, almost like the 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 scissor trucks, whatever that kind of can raise oh, the platform yeah, when you. Sure. So it, you would instead of you know having a tram or a train, they would have these things come rolling across the tarmac to pick you up. You'd load in, and then it would scroll across, or, or you know, literally as a big giant truck go over to the other side. And for whatever reason, they were having a trouble getting that rolling. There was so much construction that they couldn't go directly point to point. You had to go to an alternative spot. So needless to say, I had a connecting flight. 
by the time everybody that was on the flight we were on was able to finally get on board one of these damn things, get to the other terminal, unload, and then go through a maze of construction and walled off areas and taped off areas. We got to our, our next flight that was supposed to leave to take us over the to the United States. And it had already left because, you know, they weren't waiting for, you know, 20 people who couldn't figure out how to get to the gate on time. Fantastic. And I'm like, are you freaking kidding me? This, this, this is, we miss our flight. I'm not going to get home tonight to my kids. I'm not going to get home to my family because you're working on your airport and can't figure out how to get people from their connecting flight. Like it was their fault. And what they did do is they did put us up into a hotel. They took care of all of our food, took care of the hotel. I can say I stayed in a hotel in Paris. Never saw a damn minute of it because we got there so late. It was just like, <laughs> check in, get some food, go to bed because we were going to fly out first thing the next morning. They were going to take care of it. And so we had to be up and out the door by like 8 a.m. There was nothing really you could go do. So I didn't see any of Paris besides the bus ride to this freaking hotel and the interior of a hotel. And that was it. Well, my flight from Austria that got messed up, they took us and they were like, okay, you got two choices. Either get on these buses to go shopping or these buses to go see some historical sites. I'm like, okay, historical sites, let's go. So it was not just like drive by and go, hey, there's, you know, some dude's house that you've never heard of. They took us out of town to this mountain right outside of Vienna. And it was a mountain that the Germans during World War II had hollowed out and they were building planes in it. So the Allies couldn't figure out where all these fighter planes were coming from. And then when they did, it took them weeks to be able to, to destroy the runway enough to shut down the manufacture of the airplanes. But we went in and got to see where they built the engines in one part. And, it, and there's rail running through the whole thing. And just how this German masterful engineering had built all these Messerschmitts for World War II. Wow. So I, I spent like three hours down in these caves checking all that out, which I don't think I could do that now. I'm a little bit more cla claustrophobic, but um, but that's what I got to do when uh, when they messed up my flight. So I guess I guess I got messed up on the right airline. Oh yeah. Well, you know, I guess everybody that's done any traveling at some point probably has a similar story. So maybe in some ways this scene here becomes more relatable, even though you're not in the military. There's all all of us have had that. I think moment where we're just trying to get home and it feels like there's roadblocks and, and, and circumstances beyond our control that are keeping us from getting there. Dude, every single time I've traveled, I've had some screw up. I, I was <laughs> flying back from Tampa and I had an 8 a.m. flight and I was like, ah, you know what? I'll just go and check and see if they've got room on the 6 a.m. flight and get home a little bit or, you know, get to work a little bit earlier when I get back to Atlanta. <laughs> so I go there. Oh yeah, absolutely. Go right ahead. So I get on the 6 a.m. flight, get home, get to Hartsfield, get my luggage, uh, get my car, head out. And there is a 12 car accident on the highway right outside the airport. And I sit for two hours waiting for them to clear. <laughs> so, <laughs> well so, done, sir. So if I'd just been on that eight o'clock flight, I'd have been fine. <laughs> so. Well, let's go ahead and bring this minute to a close. We will continue, and maybe our uh, main character, at least one of the main characters we're being introduced to here early in this movie, will have a little bit better luck than the corporal being able to find a flight to the hometown he wants to go directly to rather than some other flight. Uh, before we uh, wrap this up and tell you where to get the show and where you can become more involved social media-wise, you and I, Walt, are part of a podcast called The Wilder Ride. We are the first group of 17 that are going through this movie 
a minute at a time. Let's uh, let folks know where they can learn a little bit more about us. Well, to find out about us, you're going to want to go to our website at thewilderride.com. There you're going to find out all you need to know about us, all our guests, all our past episodes, and all the cool stuff we've done. Uh, We've got a couple of interviews there that you want to check out with Beverly D'Angelo, who played the mother on uh, Christmas Vacation. And, uh, oh my gosh, what's his name? Lyle. Burton Gilliam? Oh, and in in our interview with Burton Gilliam, who played Lyle in Blazing Saddles. So we've got a ton of stuff there. And of course, that links over to all our Facebook and Instagram and all the other social media stuff that we do. So uh, check us out there and then follow us on Facebook at The Wilder Ride and join our listeners group for all the news about our podcast and then just random entertainment stuff that people post and all kinds of great discussion. And of course, if you're listening to this, you probably have us already subscribed on your podcatcher of choice, but let people know you can find the Best Minute Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Play. You can also learn more about the project and those involved by going to thebestminutes.com. As far as the social media for this project, if you want to get involved, the name of the Facebook group that's been created is called Butch's Place, The Best Years of Our Lives Listeners Cafe. You can also follow the, the, the podcast on Twitter by following The Best Minutes. And come on back tomorrow for another minute where Walt and I will continue to break down this Academy Award-winning flick one minute of the movie at a time. Until then, have a great day, and maybe your travel plans are going better than our main characters is right now. You know, I don't miss traveling. I I, I do miss it for fun. Oh, yeah, for fun it's great, but even then, I, you know, by the time you get somewhere, unless you're going someplace cool. Normally my job has been the ferryman. I'm like taking my kids from one thing to I was Uber before there was Uber. Well, with my girls, it was always I got them to their destination. It was like, oh, hey, can I have $20 for the movie now? Like, wait a minute, what? Yeah. I don't even get to go inside. I just get to come shuttle you. <laughs> Dear old day. Hey, Joe, you better hurry up out there because she's taking off soon. Right, thanks. Come on, Taylor. All of us Movies by Minutes hosts will examine the 1946 William Wyler-directed film, The Best Years of Our Lives. Ah, fuck. Ah! I had to do that all over again. Sorry. I tried to do something. Like <laughs> and three, don't laugh. Two, <laughs> stop laughing. One. Welcome back to another episode of the Best Minutes podcast, where each week Movies by Minutes hosts... <laughs> <laughs> Started speaking like I was having a retainer and I was 12. <laughs> I'm going to save that for an outtake. I'm your host, Alan Sanders, and joined as always by my partner in crime, Walt Murray. Walt. God damn it. <laughs> And how much have you had to drink? I haven't. I probably should. <laughs> well, I am Walt Murray, the co-host. And <laughs> well, hold on. I got I to fix it. I'm going to fix that. So you're definitely going to get it. You're wanna gonna. You wanna gonna. You're, you're wanna gonna. You, 